0: And Welcome to the PLUS Podcast. I'm Marianne Freiberger
1: and I'm Rachel Thomas.
0: In this podcast, we will find out how the behavior of arms has taught us humans how to solve very difficult problems. We will talk about something called stigmagy and take a brief trip into the fascinating land of complexity theory, and we will explore a class of really, really hard problems called NP hard problems
1: in one minute. Okay, well, that sounds great, but let's start this off slowly. First of all, what the hell is stigmagy?
0: <laughs> stigmagy happens when people or animals make some sort of a mark on their environment, which then guides other people or animals. So, for example, imagine you're wandering through a beautiful forest. Now, the terrain might be a bit tricky to walk in, so you'll be grateful if you find a path that some person or some animal has made earlier. You'll then follow that path and in doing so your footprints will make it more pronounced and more visible to others. The next person to come along is now also likely to follow that path and so is the next one and the one after that and so on, each making the path bigger and better. And in the end there will be a nice path that is very easy to walk on and look like it's been purposefully planned by someone. But it hasn't. The footprints left by people have guided others that came after them. And that's g. The word comes from the ancient Greek for mark, which is stigma,
1: and action, which is ergon. Okay, so now I can see how this is related to ants and other social animals like termites. When termites build their amazingly complex mounds, which can be meters high, There isn't an architect termite or a planning official termite who had some kind of master plan. Instead, the individual termites have left marks on the environment that encouraged other individuals to do certain things. That's how a lot of individual animals, none of whom is a genius, end up working together to build something that looks like it has been meticulously planned by someone with very high intelligence.
0: Exactly. And in the case of ants or termites, one important thing to make this work are pheromones. Now, these are chemical substances that individuals can deposit in their environment and which others can sense. And what's really amazing with termites, for example, is that apparently you could introduce a whole new cohort of working termites to a building site. And these are termites who have never seen that building site before and they don't know what's going on. And they'll immediately continue the construction in the right way as if they had been there from the beginning. And that's because pheromones deposited at various locations of the building site tell them what job needs to be done at that specific location.
1: Amazing. So how has this kind of thing helped humans to solve difficult problems? Well, that's what we will find out next.
0: Let's now forget about the termites and their amazing feats of construction and turn our attention to ants. Last year we spoke to Marco Dorigo of the Université Libre de Bruxelles who came up with the idea of something called ant colony optimization in his PhD thesis and has co-authored a seminal book on the topic. Here he is explaining what ants can do in the way of stigmagy.
2: Ants also use stigmagy but in a different way. The best known example of stigmagy in ants is not used to build uh, a nest, but it's rather used to find a path between different places. And in this case, the ants, when they walk, they can leave pheromones on the ground. And uh, when they move around, if they sense some pheromone, they have a higher probability to follow the pheromone trace rather than going in another direction.
0: This mechanism of depositing pheromones helps ants to find short routes between two points, for example, your picnic blanket, which has lots of tasty crumbs on it, and their nest. This was demonstrated in an experiment performed by Jean-Louis Denobourg and colleagues in 1990.
1: So this experiment offered a colony of ants two routes connecting their nests to an area they had not explored yet where they could find food. In one experiment, one of the routes was twice as long as the other, and it turned out that in most of the trials, all the ants eventually chose the shorter path. But what was happening here? Initially, the ants will have to make a random choice as to which of the two paths they're going to head off on but once one route has more pheromones than the other, they will prefer that one. Now, when one route is twice as long as the other, then the shorter one will rapidly collect more pheromones. Ants travelling down the shorter route will be the first to reach the food source and to start their trip back home, retracing their steps. In this way, the shorter route collects pheromones more quickly and a positive feedback loop kicks in. More pheromones attract more ants, which leave more pheromones, etc. So eventually, all the ants use the shorter route.
0: Denobour and his colleagues produced a mathematical model describing the pheromone mechanism. In the model, the probability of an ant choosing one of the paths depends on the amount of pheromone already on it. And running the model on a computer, scientists found exactly the behaviour displayed by real ants. And this is convincing evidence that pheromones really are what makes ants find the shorter route
1: now for us humans finding the quickest or shortest route between two places isn't a problem you just put the places into your phone and the answer comes up but really there is more to it many other problems we humans need to solve amount to finding a so-called minimum cost path on some set of network here the minimal cost might refer to minimal length or minimal time needed or minimal cost in terms of money these problems can be incredibly hard to solve
0: Yes, an example that's really famous, at least within mathematics, is the traveling salesperson problem. Imagine a salesperson who needs to visit every one of a number of cities. What order should they visit the cities in so that the overall distance is as small as possible? Now, if you only have three cities, that's easy to find out. You check all the possible orders of cities and then choose the one with the smallest distance. Now, for three cities, there are exactly six possibilities to check. But as the number of cities grows, the number of possible orders explodes. For example, for five cities, there are already 120 orders in which you could visit them. And for 10 cities, there are over 3.6 million. So as you increase the number of cities further, you will soon find that the time it would take to solve the problem using this brute force approach exceeds the age of the universe, so you'd never finish. And unfortunately, no substantially quicker way of solving the problem is known. Now, this traveling salesperson problem is an example of a combinatorial optimization problem. It's about combining a number of elements in an optimal way, in this case cities complexity theory the area of mathematics that studies how complex problems are has a whole hierarchy of problem classes and the traveling salesperson problem sits at the top of that hierarchy in a class of problems called np hard problems
1: we'll explain a bit more about np hard problems later in the podcast The traveling salesperson problem doesn't actually come up in real life that often, but other problems in this NP-hard class do, for example, vehicle routing. Here's Marco DiRigo again.
2: Uh, These are problems where you have, for example, you have a fleet of trucks uh, that have to deliver goods and you have to uh, find the optimal schedule for uh, the optimal routes for the trucks. So there, there are many versions because the trucks could be, for example, all starting from a depot in in the morning and they have to go back to the depot in the evening, or they might just be distributed over the network. Mm-hmm. But the vehicle routing, pr- routing problems are uh, N P R. So this means that if you uh, have very few trucks, maybe you can find the optimal solution. But as soon as the number of tracks increase, uh, this becomes uh, unfeasible. Not impossible, but it's unfeasible. The time it would take to the fastest existing computers is far too much. And this is, by the way, is property of all NPR problems. Basically, if you want to find the optimal solution, it can easily take more than the age of the universe. There are also
1: problems to do with timetabling or allocation of jobs to workers that also fall into this NP-hard class.
2: What is nice of NP-hard problems is that basically even though they have very different uh, uh, properties in the details, but from a high-level point of view, they all come down to finding the shortest path between two nodes.
1: So what Dorigo is saying here is that all NP-hard problems can be imagined as problems involving a network in which you have to find some sort of optimal path between two points that lie at the nodes in the network. And this is why ant colony optimization, a class of algorithms developed by Dirigo, is so useful.
0: So, how do ant colony optimization algorithms work? Given a real-world problem, you start by translating it into an optimization problem on a network. Now, networks are quite easily represented in a computer, and so are artificial ants, which you would properly call agents, moving around on those networks. The place of pheromones is taken by artificial pheromones, that is by numbers associated to links in the network. The higher the number, the more pheromone there is associated to that link. The system is started off with the same small amount of artificial pheromone on all links and the agents make random choices as to which link they travel along. When an agent has found a solution, for example a path from the starting node to the end node, it will evaluate the quality of the solution, so it will check whether it's really a short solution or a longer solution, and it will then add an amount of artificial pheromone to the links that are contained in the solution that's proportionate to the quality of the solution. So the amount of artificial pheromone associated to a link biases the choice of an artificial agent sitting on a node attached to that link. The more pheromone, the higher the chance the agent chooses to travel down that link.
2: At the beginning, you have the network, all the edges have the same amount of pheromone, very small amount everywhere. So when I am am an artificial agent, I am uh, on a node, I see around me what are the choices, they have uh, all the same pheromone, so I choose randomly but all the choices have the same probability. But after a while, some of the edges will have more pheromone because they've been used more frequently or because they belong to solutions that have been created that are better than others. So I have a slightly higher probability to choose these edges. This goes on all the time in parallel with many agents and the system at some point finds good solutions.
0: Using this idea, people have developed not just one algorithm to solve a particular problem, but a whole framework that can be tailored to whatever combinatorial optimization problem you would like to solve. colony optimization is up there with the state-of-the-art algorithms that are being used to solve difficult real-life combinatorial optimization problems, such as the vehicle routing problem mentioned above or timetabling problems, for example.
1: That's great! So these little, humble animals have inspired a whole class of computer algorithms. But I have to ask one more question for all the theorists out there. These algorithms may work well in practice, but mathematicians, well, we always want proof. What have people been able to prove about how well these algorithms work?
0: Well, that's the thing, so far the theoretical pickings are quite thin. All that theorists have been able to show in general is that given an infinite amount of time, the ant colony optimization algorithms will find an optimal solution to the problems they have been designed to solve. Now, of course, an infinite amount of time is exactly what people trying to solve real-world problems don't have. Um, But there's still a point to the result. In theory, it could be possible for the algorithm to never, ever find an optimal solution, so it would be completely useless. And at least with the proof that uh, with an infinite amount of time an algorithm can't solve a problem, that kind of possibilities has been ruled out. Now, for some particular algorithms within the class of AND collinear optimization, there are theoretical results about how fast they find an optimal solution. So that would be better than just simply knowing that they can't find one in an infinite amount of time. However, these are not the algorithms one would want to use in practice, as experience shows that these are not as good as others. So basically, the algorithms for which we have some sort of theoretical proof of how fast they converge to a solution are not the ones that in practice have proved to be the best ones. Now, this uh, f- this slightly unfortunate fact doesn't only apply to ant-collinear optimization, but to most algorithmic frameworks designed to solve combinatorial optimization problems. The algorithms for which we have proofs about their performance are not the ones that
1: perform the best in practice." Well, wow, that's fascinating. And if you'd like to know more about the contribution of ANTs and their theoretical agent counterparts to mathematics, you can find out more on plus.maths.org and search for ANTs. We've now come to the part of our podcast where we try to explain some maths in one minute. So far, we've been talking about something called NP-hard problems. So Marianne, I challenge you to explain what NP-hard problems are in just one minute.
0: Right, okay, so let's focus on problems which involve a number of things and that have a yes-no answer. So, for example, this slightly modified version of a travelling salesperson problem, given a number of cities, Is there a route that visits every city exactly once which is shorter than some given distance d? The time it takes to answer this kind of problem gets longer as the number of things involved increases. So answering the problem for 5 cities will be a lot quicker than for 15 cities, for example. The question is how fast that time grows as the number of things grows. If the time taken to find a solution grows proportionally as fast as the number of things, then complexity theorists consider the problem easy. If the time grows proportionally to the number of things squared, um, they still consider the problem easy. In fact, if the time grows proportionally to any power of the number of things, even if it's a high power, the problem is considered to be easy. And it is then part of the easy P class of problems, where P stands for polynomial time. The property of polynomial here stands in contrast to exponential, which, as we all know now, is really fast growth. Now, there is also a class of problems called NP. These are problems for which no polynomial time algorithm is known, so they are hard problems, and there isn't an easy solution. What is special about NP problems, though, is that if somebody gave you a solution, then you could check that the answer is correct in polynomial time. So. For our yes-no version of the traveling salesperson problem, this is an NP problem. There's no polynomial time algorithm for finding a route that is shorter than some given distance. But once you have a route, you can quickly check by adding up all the distances if it is shorter than your specified maximum distance. So finding a solution is hard, but checking a suggested solution is easy. Now, informally, NP-hard problems are problems that are at least as hard as the hardest NP problems and possibly harder. And as we said above, the Travelling Salesperson problem or the Vehicle Routing problems they are both NP-Hard problems.
1: That's great! The pedant in me wants to point out one thing. You might suspect that the NP in this stands for Non-Polynomial, but actually it stands for Non-Deterministic Polynomial for slightly complicated reasons that we won't explain in one minute. You
0: can find more about this class of NP-hard problems in our interview with one of the pioneers of this area, Stephen Cook, by visiting plus.maths.org and searching for NP-hard problems. And this takes us to the end of this PLUS podcast. The music in this podcast came from Yusa and the track is called Peaceful Nuclear Explosions. Other sound effects are from Astounded on freesound.org. Thanks for listening and bye bye.